All right, back on the Young Turks. So a couple updates for you guys. So as you saw right before we went to break, we did cross the 100,000 barrier on town hall. So right now, tyt.com slash town hall stands at $104,905, 3,565 individual donors within 24 hours. You guys made it happen. So it's our job now to go get you guys excellent, knowledgeable moderators to convince the the candidates to try to debate. If they won't, then we'll have to go to a town hall version. A lot of great help is already poured in. One of the Young Turks viewers looks like has arranged for a great venue here in LA to carry it for free. And so keep it going, guys. Look, these debates and town halls normally for media organizations cost a couple of million dollars. We're gonna try to do it for as little as we can, but if we can get to $200,000, that would we could improve the quality of it tremendously, both stylistically and the ability to get more people to participate. And, and so thank you, thank you, thank you. And meanwhile, I'm gonna remind you of one other thing real quick. I remember how Wolfpack's doing a film to get money out of politics and to show that story of how incredibly doable it is. Because the number one problem people have is that they hate the money in politics, they hate the corruption, but they don't realize that it's actually, there's a very practical solution. That's what we wanna show in the movie. Well, they wanna raise $50,000 for that, and they're almost there. They're at over $47,000. They're at, they have about 94% of their goal. We could put them over the top today too. That'd be a great twofer. Wolf-pack.com slash film. So they're just trying to get to 50,000. They're at around 47,000 now. Let's see if we can get that done too. You guys give us all the power that we have and we I hope to God that we're wielding it effectively on your behalf. So now let's get to our guests. Joining me now is Dave Leventhal, he's a senior political reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. Dave, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, great to be with you. Great to have you. So you guys have written about Joe Walsh recently. He's challenging President Trump in a Republican primary along with William Weld. Weld did not get a lot of press pickup, but Walsh has. And you guys have covered some of the interesting things about him. First, let's pause on on why. why. Why do you think Walsh got a lot more coverage than William Well did? Well, first of all, Walsh is bombastic. He is a radio show host. He sort of has that media savvy that uh, Bill Weld just kind of lacks. Uh, Bill Weld is not uh, necessarily a compelling character uh, in his current iteration, perhaps back in the 90s when he was governor of Massachusetts and he was conducting press conferences and jumping into rivers, uh, which actually happened, then then we might be talking a different story. But uh, yeah, Joe Walsh really saw an opportunity here to uh, make a splash, not to extend the metaphor, and, uh, and, and really find a seam here in the Republican primary that nobody, Bill Weld included, has been able to occupy, which is a, a rabble rouser and somebody who is willing to say anything and almost do anything to oppose Donald Trump, not from a Democratic standpoint, but within the Republican Party in a primary setting where Donald Trump is just going to have to deal with him or ignore him at his own peril. So unfortunately, we reward bad behavior in 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 this country these days because of the way that the media has evolved. And so William Weld is a governor of Massachusetts, a very blue state. Uh, governor is much bigger than Joe Walsh, a one-term congressman. Uh, 
Um, so theoretically, Welch should have a lot more credibility and be covered more. But Walsh, uh, with his quote unquote bombast, uh, is a more interesting character. But Dave, what's the essence of that bombast? I mean, he has said things that are outrageous that are similar to Donald Trump. So where's the difference? There's not necessarily going to be, uh, and you talk about a difference, I mean, there's not necessarily going to be much there by virtue of the fact that Donald Trump remains wildly popular within the Republican Party. Now, Joe Walsh has made the case that that's a soft popularity, that there are people in the Republican Party who are yearning for a different option. If a real option is presented to them, they will leave Donald Trump, they will stop supporting Donald Trump. We don't have any evidence of that, at least at this point, and it's so early in the Joe Walsh campaign here, we have uh, no sense of whether he's going to have any real support and certainly any real money, any real resources. He's been doing the rounds on all the television shows. He's definitely gotten a lot of press uh, for just simply getting into the race in the manner that he has. But whether that translates into anything more than maybe a token percentage, two or three percentage points of, uh, of support uh, relative to where Donald Trump is at, which is almost universal Republican support, remains to be seen. And uh, one would have to be dubious as to, to whether this is really going to amount to anything for Joe Walsh, who's a right. one-term congressman who hasn't served in Congress since the early part of this decade, who wasn't able to raise really a ton of money when he was running for Congress. And after he got beat, had run into you know quite a bit of trouble uh, using racist terms on his radio show. He's had some personal financial issues that we got into in our story. So it's not as if he is a baggage-free candidate coming into this race. So I literally don't know what his thesis is because uh, it seems that he agrees with Trump on most of the issues. And he says he needs to be more moral, but he's gotten in trouble for saying some of the same things that Trump has said. So seriously and literally, Dave, do you know how he's distinguished himself and what makes him different than Trump and, and hence the point of his run? He, in essence, has said that he has found religion, that his sins of the past are, are not uh, not applicable for the Joe Walsh of the present, and that he's somebody who has credibility in a way, and that he's been there, he's done that, and he is no longer that or doing that going forward. So in a way, he's fashioning himself as very much the anti-Trump, even if he was somebody who the day Donald Trump got elected was saying, uh, or I should say the day before Donald Trump got elected, that if Donald Trump didn't get elected, he was going to grab his musket and you know, quite literally uh, just go out and do everything he could to support Donald Trump. He's moved away from that uh, very quickly over the past uh, couple of years as Donald Trump has been President Trump as opposed to candidate Trump. And that's really where we've seen the transformation as it has been with Joe Walsh. Yeah, well, the modern day equivalent of a musket is the AR-15. And a lot of people uh, that support Trump have picked that up. And that didn't go well. So if Joe has learned from that, well, I'm happy to hear it. But that kind of incendiary talk was outrageous. He's also, at least in the past, was a conspiracy theorist and a racist one at that, like Trump, because he also believed in Obama's the birth of theory, right? Correct. And he, again, has made the case in the media rounds that he's been making that he no longer believes that, that that was a mistake on his part. So it's not uh, it's not the best thing in the world if you're a presidential candidate having to start off your campaign with a whole series of mea culpas. But that's pretty much where we're at with 
Joe Walsh, uh, whether he's able to get beyond that and convince any Republicans that he's somebody who is genuine uh, in his transformation as he's presented it. Again, that too remains to be seen, but uh, we'll have some polls. They will come out. We'll see if uh, he makes any waves at all. But what we do know is that he doesn't have much of a campaign per se in a traditional way. He's kind of winging it. He's uh, acknowledged that straight up. So if you're expecting that he's going to have operations in New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina and Nevada, the early caucus and primary states, don't expect that anytime soon. He doesn't have the money to do that. He doesn't have the resources to do that. There are no finances that seem to be uh, on the horizon, Uh, although he's definitely doing his best to raise small dollar donations from people who would consider themselves to be conservatives or uh, independent-minded Republicans uh, who are willing to do something different than vote for Donald Trump in a primary. You know what, the funny thing is this conversation convinced me that he's right to enter the race. Uh, So let me run this thesis by you, Dave. Sure. Um, So you don't enter the race because you think uh, you're gonna beat Donald Trump uh, in the Republican primary. That's, uh, if things stay the same, that is inconceivable. Uh, But if Donald Trump, who is acting more and more erratic every single day and saying insane things at a dizzying rate, uh, and the economy is on the brink of recession. If something were to go wrong and Trump was not in the race anymore, well, it would have helped you to be already in the race and have gotten a lot of attention as the guy challenging him. It would also help you to have said outrageous things in the past because then you start your campaign with a giant media tour. Even if it's for a mea culpa, at least everybody has you on. Uh, so, and ground operation, Trump didn't have one either. So when you put all those things together, it might actually be a savvy move. Now, the big difference is that Donald Trump is Donald Trump and has basically been a national figure for the better part of three decades. Joe Walsh is a relative unknown who, yes, is known in some certain quarters, but certainly not nationally in the way that Donald Trump is. But you make a good point. It's a situation where we know full well especially given the past few years, that the one predictable thing in politics is the lack of predictability. Crazy things can happen, wild things can happen. Things that you wouldn't have thought in a million years would happen end up doing so in a relatively short period of time. That's not a prediction that anything of the sort is going to happen in the 2020 presidential race in the Republican primary specifically, but hey, you know, Donald Trump uh, has a way of, uh, of being a uh, his own best friend and worst enemy at the same time. And we we have so many variables that have yet to be solved for the economy, as you brought up, uh, being a huge one. So say the economy, let's just play that game out. You know, say the economy turned incredibly sour. We went into a recession. All the things that Donald Trump loves to say about the stock market being great and job uh, creation being through the roof, et cetera, et cetera. If that all went away, well, where might he be right around the time when people are beginning to cast their votes? Uh, Joe Walsh being on the scene at that point. uh, Yeah, you know, if you're not in the game, you're nowhere. So the fact that he is in the game and potentially getting himself on some ballots uh, puts him in, in a stature that other Republicans haven't got. Make no mistake, he's not Nikki Haley. He's not a sitting U.S. Yeah. senator. He's not somebody who's run for president before. So he's got a huge mountain ahead of him to climb. Oh, yeah. But hey, getting in the race just in and of itself is something. And yeah, you got to pay attention to a person like that if, uh, if if they are saying things that at least some people are connecting with. Yeah, yeah. Dave, you know, I just uh, realized this is a, a, an interview filled with epiphanies for me. 
what's going to happen. So I've been predicting for from day one that Donald Trump is not gonna finish his first term. Uh, he's just too stupid right. uh, to be able to not create gigantic messes and not know how to get out. And he always bails, he declares bankruptcy, he finds an excuse, he cries and he leaves. So I, I think, but I always thought like, well, I guess he's they're gonna have primaries after that obviously. and. Then I realized, no, he's gonna probably leave in the at some point next year when a lot of the primaries are already over, and his last gift to the Republican Party in this country is going to be the giant mess of the Republican convention as they try to figure out what the hell to do when most of the primaries are gone, but so is the president. <laughs> I I have no idea what's gonna happen then, but that well. is gonna be a ride. I mean, these scenarios are in, in are we've been thinking about them, uh, you know, year after year after year, and not just while Donald Trump has uh, been running for president or been president, but in other iterations as well. What if it goes to the convention floor? What if there's no actual nominee? What if there is a tie? I mean, the most yeah. obvious thing that would happen in a Republican situation or a Republican context if Donald Trump was suddenly not able to become the nominee for 2020 at the convention is that Mike Pence would slide into it. That would be the conventional wisdom. But then again, something as chaotic as that could lead in no. any of a dozen and one different directions. So I would agree with you there. Yeah, we gotta go, but I'm now delighted at this idea. Because ain't no way the Republicans let Mike Pence just take it. Uh, they'll take out their knives, Ted Cruz will go to work, Mitt Romney will get into that mess, Nikki Haley will be there, Joe Walsh will be there. If he leaves after Super Tuesday, Trump does, it's gonna be like, I never believe that the convention is ever going to be a mess. That's from like decades ago, it never happens, it's a fairy tale. But if the elections already, primaries already happen, then yes, the convention will be a giant disaster. But a lot of people thought that a Trump presidency would be a fairy tale too, and here we are. Yeah, that's right. All right, Dave Leventhal from Center for Republican Integrity. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and the Yang Gang multiplies. Someone who was working for Andrew Yang is now running for Congress and running against one of the top Democrats. We're going to interview him, see if he's got a shot. Well, look, this is how movements start. So you saw a lot of things here first. Maybe this is one of them when we return. All right, back in the Young Turks. All right, first update on town hall, $106,133. And here's the amazing part. Remember, just less than an hour ago, I was saying, oh, we're almost at 3,000 individual donors. Now we're at 3,610 individual donors. So you guys are amazing. I, I hope we have uh, the most interesting, intellectual, policy-driven uh, uh, debate slash town hall anybody has ever seen. And if that does happen, uh, you of course get 100% of the credit because we obviously literally could not have done it without without this. And we, let's keep it going. Uh, and and the more money we raise. The more that people want to get involved and realize, well, if you're going to reach the people, uh, here they are. It's obvious. So when we tell them, by the way, that we have 11 billion lifetime views, we have 250 million views a month. They're like, ah, I don't know, man. I can't tell internet views. Oh, right. Uh, they don't get it. 
and then they say, oh, you guys raised 100, $200,000 online. Wow, that must mean you have real people watching. <laughs> but okay, all right, whatever it takes. So, and one more thing, I, I'm gonna be on Cuomo tonight at nine o'clock. We're gonna debate how disastrous uh, Trump's poll numbers are and what a failure he is. You're gonna love me bashing him uh, against the conservative and how the farmers are abandoning him because uh, the trade war is killing him. And the post game today, Anna's gonna come back and talk about Devin Nunes being triggered. That is a hilarious story. There's an update on his lawsuit. It's too good, too funny. Do not miss it. That's for the members. That's the last half hour of the show. TYT.com slash join to become a member and get that last part of the program. All right, let's go to our next guest now. Uh, joining me now is Jonathan Herzog. Uh, he's an interesting cat. I want to tell you a story about him. Uh, but first, Jonathan, welcome. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So, Jonathan, uh, you go to Harvard undergrad. Great. Check. Uh, everybody's proud. Uh, you go to NYU Business School. It's a great business school. Check. Everybody's proud. Then, Jesus and Lord Mercy, you turn around and go to Harvard Law School. Uh, okay, great. Uh, you're gonna get out. Uh, your parents are gonna be proud of you. You're gonna make a lot of money. Except you left halfway through. What'd you do that for? <laughs> yes. Well, thanks again for having me. And the reason I did that was there was this entrepreneur named Andrew Yang who was calling out this central economic shift that we're going through, where we're automating away the most common jobs. And it's reached the point that our life expectancy as a country has declined for the past three years, which is unheard of due to deaths of despair. So he was ringing the alarm bell and I felt a great sense of urgency. So I moved out to Iowa um, and organized and kick off uh, the, the campaign out there. Um, and then over the um, past year, the campaign has uh, taken off. Uh, the Yang Gang caught fire and became a national movement. And the question just came up over and over again, well, how do we get this through Congress? How do we get the Humanity First platform and the Freedom Dividend through Congress? So that's why I'm running now back home in the 10th District of New York. So I wanna talk about your Democratic opponent in a second as well, because your take on him is interesting. But I am randomly curious, when you told your parents I'm dropping out of Harvard Law because I wanna become a Yangster, what was their reaction? <laughs> It's a, it's a fair question. Um, I think there was definitely some bewilderment <laughs> from, from all sides. But um, I think it's safe to say um, feel feel pretty vindicated at this point because we've seen um, how the national movement has, has caught fire um, and how folks are unwilling to accept that in, for example, in my district, the financial capital of the world, 16% of people live in poverty. So it's... It's been awesome to see how the, how the movement has, has built over time. Yeah, uh, they probably didn't think you were gonna join a gang when you were growing up, but <laughs> <laughs> but apparently you did. Uh, and it is taking off. By the way, I'm earlier in the show we uh, talked about how I'm proud that uh, I predicted that Warren and, and Sanders would be number one and two, and it looks like that's where uh, they are today, certainly in some of the polls. Uh, but I also predicted that Andrew Yang would get in the top six when people thought that was the craziest thing they'd ever heard. And in a lot of the polls, Andrew Yang now polling at number six. Number six and even number five, and you have been there all the way, calling the balls. 
And um, it's just, it's been fantastic to see because you are definitely, definitely ahead of the curve in that respect. Yeah, this because the American people uh, don't like politicians. And, and, the, and the people who love politicians all live in Washington, New York. They all work in media and they can't get it. We don't like your friends, sorry. <laughs> uh, so on the other hand, you're running a unique uh, congressional campaign because you said some very nice things about Jerry Nadler, your opponent. You even said, I gotta quote this. Uh, you called him a patriot and a great public servant. Wow, then why run against them? <laughs> sure, so in that context, the, the question was, well, are you um, running to unseat him for that purpose? Um, and my answer was no, um, I'm, I'm focused on how do we address the central challenge of our time? That even in a city like Manhattan, which you might think would be immune to the forces of automation and AI on the workforce, even there, 20% of our stores are closing and we've lost 10,000 retail jobs because of automation and e-commerce. So my emphasis was just being focused on how do we solve the problems on the ground? The fact that we're scapegoating immigrants for technology making more of our work obsolete and not just attacking and um, other Democrats who are running. Yeah, and so Jonathan, at first I saw that quote of yours about Nadler, and I thought, nah, I don't like it. Uh, I, I like breaking political ankles and uh, and and going to work on on my homes. Okay, uh, but you know, hearing you out on it, uh, I actually am, am switching my position on that. And look, I love being tough and aggressive against uh, corporate Democrats, etc. But I really like the way you framed it, saying. You know what, what? No matter whatever you think of these incumbents in general and Nadler in specific, we're not pushing for bold progressive change, and everybody knows it. Even if they get dragged to be in the right position eventually, no one disputes that almost all of the incumbents you have to drag them kicking and screaming to get to the right place. Why not just bring in new people with bold ideas? How about that? <laughs> so, speaking of which, I want to ask you about one of those. So look, everybody because of Andrew now knows, not everybody, but a lot of people know about universal basic income. You said obviously that you're in favor of that and that's why you're running. But I don't think enough people know about democracy dollars. So can yes. you tell us about that? Yes, and thank you so, so much for your leadership on this because campaign finance reform is so, so central to restoring true democracy and power to New Yorkers and to people all across the country. It's a very simple idea. It's that every American, every New Yorker adult gets $100 in a voucher that they can allocate to a political candidate. So we're going to wash out corporate lobbyist money because it would require a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And we should take a multifaceted approach to try to combat money in politics at every step possible. But this is a potentially really impactful and efficient way of putting resources directly into the hands of people. And we saw that it worked in Seattle. It was tested empirically. And so, so that's the big idea, is to flush out big money in politics with small dollar people powered movements. So I want the audience to understand that better because it's actually a very powerful idea. And I was talking to Larry Lessig recently, the godfather yes. of the movement to get money out of politics. And he gave a lot of credit to Andrew Yang, and he also gave credit to Kirsten Gillibrand. Because Andrew said $100 in democracy yes. dollars, and then Senator Gillibrand said, why don't we do $600? So Jonathan, I know you got it at $100, I'd encourage you to take it at least to 500. 
and, and, and let me explain to the audience why. So look, sure. at the end of the day, we gotta get an amendment and end the private financing of elections. Otherwise, those politicians will serve private interests for the rest of the time. It's just a matter of incentives and disincentives. And so I think a lot of people get that. But in order to get to the amendment, we need enough new faces in Congress that didn't get there through the corruption. And in order to do that, if you give democracy dollars, it says, look, you've got 100 bucks, 500, 600 bucks to give to any candidate you like. You can give 100 to Bernie Sanders, you can give 200 to Jonathan, you can give 200 to Jessica Cisneros, whatever you want, right? But you've got this, this bucket of money that you can give out, and that is part of what the government is doing to create public financing. Now, that doesn't take out the Koch brother money, the Sheldon Adelson money, the Bloomberg money, Soros money, it doesn't take out any of that. But at least it puts you in the ball game. And we saw with the Justice Democrats last time around, when you're in the ball game, even if you get outspent 10 to 1, 20 to 1, as AOC was, you could still win if you get to a threshold minimum, and democracy dollars can help you get there. So, John, yeah, I, I know that I'm putting you on the spot here, but uh, would you consider uh, making democracy dollars 500 instead of 100? Well, there certainly has to be some limiting principle in the in the financing. Uh, but to the extent we can find the, find the budgeting and the financing, the idea is, as you suggest, in a congressional race, for example, if we can get 10,000 people uh, behind me or behind any campaign, uh, that could be a million dollars. Or in your proposal, maybe five million, which would be fantastic. Um, so I think uh, generally, absolutely, we have to put more resources and empower people to make the decisions about their own representatives. So look, at Ryan Grimm in his book, uh, We've Got People, wrote that the Young Turks voting series two and a half million dollars for the Just Democratic candidates. And so, and that was when they had no democracy dollars. Imagine <laughs> if they all had $500 that they could give away uh, to these uh, politicians. That isn't their money, but it's it's what we're doing as a basically a public project to clean up our elections and make them more accountable to the people. Jesus, we, I don't know, maybe we're gonna raise 10 million, 20 million, 100 million. I don't know what the number is, but we're gonna raise a lot more money. And that makes it people powered. That's what's really important. Anyway, but I do wanna get to other policies. So you got universal basic income, you got democracy dollars. Um, what are some of your other planks, major planks in your campaign? Absolutely, well, we have to get uh, healthcare costs off the backs of New Yorkers and families and, and small businesses uh, to restore entrepreneurship and, and freedom. And so moving towards a Medicare for all healthcare system, especially tackling the fact that mental health and uh, sky high rates of anxiety and depression are plaguing um, the millennial generation in particular. Um, and this is correlated to the use of social media and new technology. So we have to be able to tackle our healthcare system and provide um, healthcare for all. That's another core tenet of, of the platform. All right, um, look, uh, Medicare for all, uh, obviously something that the whole country needs. And yes, you think New York, especially that district, is really rich and uh, a lot of folks in that district are very wealthy. But as Jonathan told you earlier, 16% live in poverty. And so who, who's gonna be there to catch him uh, when we have trouble? And, and we have trouble already, let alone the recession that's coming up. So uh, unique campaign, Herzog2020.com is the website. Uh, Jonathan, I 
presume that you don't take corporate PAC money, is that right? That is most definitely right. <laughs> All right, so uh, small dollar donations and, and volunteers are absolutely critical uh, for absolutely. this campaign. Jonathan, thank you for joining us, appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for having me, I'll see you soon. Yep, maybe in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we gotta take a break here, guys. And uh, and uh, they're gonna be back with a post game. Uh, hilarious one about Devin Nunes. He's still crying, but wait till you see what he did to Devin Nunes's cow. Uh, that social media account. Uh, I don't want to give away the twists, but it's a great set of twists. tyt.com/slash/join. One last check as I got to run here, uh, but tyt.com/slash/townhall. One more refresh. One hundred six thousand five hundred eighty-six. Uh, you guys are phenomenal. Thank you guys, uh, and check me out at nine o'clock on CNN too. All right, we'll be right back.